0: Hello, everyone. It's G3. And this week on Green Marbles, we are delighted to have Jordy Visser on to talk about his new webinar, Don't Fight the Cred, which just dropped this week. In it, Jordy crunches the data and points to a number of charts that illustrate what he is seeing in the markets. So please stick around, check out important disclosures at the end of the episode. And if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give a rating to the show. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording. Jordi, great to have you here to talk about your most recent webinar and to get a sense of how you see things in the market. I have to just ask, I know you're all into HRV these days, but let's not forget about the sleep score. How was your sleep score last night?
1: According to Oura Ring, It remains on the lower end of last year, which is still a good reading in the 80s. But the continuation of what has started as I have focused, like many people, I will tell you, I've never received more interest on any, let's say, rabbit hole that I've been diving into than HRV. HRV is definitely a trending topic. And as I've spent more time on HRV, I have been uber successful in raising my HRV to levels that I did not think possible. And this is both on the Oura Ring and the iWatch. And I will say to everyone who's had an iWatch, the numbers themselves on the iWatch, they're higher than the ones on Aura Ring. So I don't really care about the numbers. I'd prefer to use the Aura Ring numbers as kind of my true HRV. But the trend in the iWatch is exactly the same, meaning it's almost doubled on my iWatch data and it's gone up both January and February and on the Aura Ring it has also almost doubled going from the you know, low 30s, high 20s to the high 50s to low 60s. And so the sleep score has gone down in the Aura Ring. What's really interesting and this shows how much I don't trust data, you know, the algorithms as much as I do the data. The compiler in the Apple iWatch, my sleep score is the highest ever. So my HRV has gone higher in the iWatch. My heart rate dip, which is not measured in the aura ring, is insane. It's incredible how much that's changed. So my heart rate dip is coming down sharply. And my scores for sleep are at the highest level on the iWatch. And that's the way it feels to me. On the Oura Ring, my sleep scores have gone down to the lowest of the last year, but the HRV in both cases has gone the same way. The other thing that's gone exactly the same way is my resting heart rate, which has gone down. My breathing rate has actually stayed the same. So overall, what Oura Ring says is I'm not getting as much REM sleep and as much deep sleep as I was before. And the iWatch, every other analytic that's there, which Oura Ring either does or doesn't, and this is on the SleepWatch app. Is better. So it's an interesting part of data analytics of two separate things collecting your data showing the exact same trends, but giving you a different composite score. Hmm. Very interesting. I've been just focusing in on the Aura Ring. Three days ago, my sleep score was
0: 44. Two days ago, my sleep score was 95, and last night's was 84. So my sleep score is bouncing around like a meme stock during COVID. I don't know what you have to do to get a 44, but I know it's not good. (laughs) You do not sleep much, and then you wind up sleeping amazingly well the following night. (laughs) But all right, I'm rocking an 84 today, so hopefully I'll be able to ask you questions coherently. I'd like to start by just quoting a very successful writer, special person, somebody who we are going to have on the podcast soon, Annie Duke. And in her new book entitled Quit the power of knowing when to walk away, she writes, quote, psychologically, we are biased to gut things out, especially when we've already sunk significant resources into our effort. But staying the course when it's no longer worthwhile, waste time, energy, and money that could be spent better elsewhere. It's a great quote, and I'd like to start by having you relate this quote to your views on the state of the markets, and specifically to those folks out there who have been calling for doom and gloom and for a recession to start any day now, are they just unable to make the psychological adjustment? Are they wedded to the
1: narrative of just trying to gut things out, in your view? So what had happened by the time we got to October was year-over-year inflation had peaked in June. The monthly data points for inflation were trending at sub 3% as of October for the second half of the year from above 10% for the first half of the year. So we had already seen a deceleration in inflation. Growth numbers via the ism and a whole bunch of things were trending downward. And so at that point, the Fed had not really pivoted in the way that I think now is becoming more obvious. But the people... In October, that had a view that the Fed was willing to put the economy into a recession to win the inflation battle, which was the message we heard from Powell in August, Jackson Hole, and into September. That has obviously shifted at this point, <laughs> and more so, I think, this week than any, because we had the FOMC meeting last week, and Powell had the chance to change the tone of what he said on Tuesday and that just hasn't happened. So inflation still pointed down, the ISM is still headed lower, but the job situation remains positive. And so for anyone who's been negative and I think the biggest surprise which we talked about at the beginning of the year would not be the inflation stuff. It would not be where the Fed was. Most of those things were now built into a fairly tight range meaning inflation is pointed downward, no one's arguing that point. At the same time, expectations for the Fed peak rate, although higher than they were the beginning of last week, They're not too far away from 5%, which is where they've really been since October. You've had a scenario at this point where it's like, okay, guys, the jobs number was probably the most important thing. It came in higher than expected. And the Fed doesn't seem to care that much. In fact, they're saying things like, yes, we want to see inflation come down. And that's our primary fight, but we're not going to work to create job losses just to get the inflation number down. That's where things have changed. And so when that happens, you pretty much have a scenario that the biggest surprise right now remains that there won't be a recession this year because 65% of people did. And I think it's becoming more obvious that's less likely to occur based on the data we've seen in the jobs number and the China PMI and the EU PMI. And so I thought it was important to do a webinar because as far as I'm concerned, that had the most amount of charts I've ever put into a webinar. Yeah, there, were, there were a lot of good charts there. And I tried to do it quickly to keep it under 30 minutes for the audience's sake. but. The fact that there were so many of those means to me, there's so much compelling information for people to change their views, and I just haven't done it yet.
0: Can we just circle back to this jobs report? It was a blowout number, obviously, blew away everyone's expectations. In your view, what is the state of the jobs market? Was that number an aberration, or do you think we are witnessing an acceleration, perhaps even, of you know the economy, and maybe that's a sign of it?
1: Well, first of all, there's no doubt in my mind that the number was inflated for seasonals for something in January and that when we get into March, the data will have normalized and I'd be surprised if the average for the three months of the first quarter is more than, well, we came in at 500. I have a strong suspicion that the number is probably closer to 200 to 250, which means there'd have to be large revisions downward or a big shift downward for the next two months. But that data is coming from just looking at all the data for the job situation. I just don't see any meaningful pickup in employment in the servicesm, the manufacturingism. A lot of the hiring was in areas that are still going to be hiring, particularly healthcare. And that's one of the reasons why, if you really want to go through this, and again, I wrote an Outlook paper for this year where it specifically said, I'm not in the recession camp. And the reason I'm not in the recession camp is number one, we have a labor shortage that means we're still going to have job creation and until we have job losses, that's not there. Secondly, there's no systemic event on the horizon. I don't see it. And that's only intensified with credit spreads getting tighter, but most importantly was a belief that the fed had no intention to put the economy into a recession and kill jobs if year over year inflation was pointed downward. And that's where we sit right now. So the jobs report, basically just reduced the recession situation significantly for me. But it didn't really mean much other than that, because I don't think the jobs market is that strong right now.
0: Can you describe, though, this flaw, or at least what I think is a flaw in the logic of the bears? First, they thought a recession was inevitable. Now they are saying because the jobs print was so strong, the Fed is going to have to tighten more aggressively. So it seems like no matter what the jobs data was, they were going to
1: use it, as a mechanism to adhere to their narrative, right? Yes. And so Annie Duke put in, and I forget the exact, you know, word she used, but the hard part is to admit that the time spent, the resources spent, the, all the work you went through it. But there's one thing she did include in there, which to me with the markets is actually having a big impact. I noticed this last year and I'm not going to get into specific names, But I think social media and the need to be on TV for people, and that's ironic considering we're doing a podcast here, (laughs) but I grew up at the racetrack, like losing on a race is part of the overall gaining of things. Being flexible and sizing your bets is the most important, but quitting or admitting when you're wrong, it happens at the end of the race in the markets. Nobody quits. They just keep going with the same argument until eventually they just don't say anything anymore. But when you put things in social media, it's there. So I can go into LinkedIn and I can look at people that I really had a lot of respect for. And the only thing they put out every day is this horrible bearish thing, no matter what data point comes out. We've talked about some of this. I just don't understand how you go. In my webinar yesterday, the first four things I showed, I think, were why people think a recession is likely. And based on history, some of these are 100%, especially the leading economic indicators year over year. So I'm not refuting the fact that in some sort of way, I actually said we're coming out of a recession, which I believe we are. Now, coming out of a recession when there's no definition, true definition for a recession is irrelevant to me. And that's why I don't think people realize when they're having these arguments, part of the argument they're having is with themselves, and they can't admit that they were wrong. And anyone that's seen their kid having a temper tantrum That kid's not admitting. I think a lot of people, because of the credibility they have in social media and the fact that they can't go erase all these things, they're having a hard time because that is an ego thing to give in. So I think there's a lot of temper tantrums going on right now for people that have been bearish.
0: So just to make sure I fully understand this point, what you're saying is that when people have a very active, big presence on social media and they put forth a narrative, they are in some ways handcuffed by that narrative moving forward, because they are fearful that if they change their mind, even though the data may have changed and the fact pattern may have changed, it looks like they're admitting that they were wrong. And a lot of these people want to portray themselves as being these fortune tellers who have an insight into how they're right more than they're wrong, so they don't want to back away.
1: Yes, and I'll add one more thing. I can tell you from my own Twitter, if I put out something showing that housing has fallen faster than any time over the last 40 years, that is a higher probability of going viral than something that says the housing market just had its largest bounce in the last 20 years. I'm just telling you for whatever reason in Twitter, people, they love bear markets and they love people that write about them. And so I think people get caught in this thing that if they were to turn the anger that they feel is going to come to them and it's a very dangerous place to put yourself in. And that's why I don't spend a lot of time reading research reports. I don't spend a lot of time like on someone's thing. I actually am looking for what they're writing about to add to my own thoughts. So the leading economic indicators year over year and the fact that I saw that at this level of minus 6%, there hasn't been any time in history that we weren't in a recession. Okay, well then I'll say we're in a recession right now. I don't even know what that means because that usually gets decided after the fact, but that means to me that we're in an investor recession. And I think we were in an investor recession. That's why cash is so low. And that's why I highlighted that The sentiment of the AAII bulls, which I had just seen in some of the bearish things. And this is seriousness. (laughs) In the prior week, I had seen this is the most bullish people have been in a year. And so I included the chart of the last 40 years of the AAII bull sentiment being at the lows of the last 40 years. So it's at the highs of the last year, but the lows of the last 40 years. But the only chart that we see in some of these social media feeds was the net bulls bears for the last year. So I think it's cherry picking. I think people are stuck on it, but I think social media is actually having a negative bias on people not being able to change their views. Just to emphasize, and I know we're trying to do this more because not everyone who listens to this podcast can handle a 30-minute, (laughs) 45-chart expose of the market. I'm glad you said it, not me. (laughs) But for a lot of people at pension funds and stuff, they like them that way. So we are going to start putting up things along the way that will make sense. But yeah, I will go through and I'll actually put up on the website, which the link will go, showing the sentiment for the last 40 years that I used in the webinar. Okay, so we will put, in our show
0: notes a quick link that you can click on where you can see what you've just described about sentiment, where it is now.
1: Yeah. And feel free, G3, whenever I say something that you think should be up there, go ahead and let me know and I'll add it after the show. I will. Everyone has
0: now heard that. So you're on record. All right. Well, besides this jobs report, is there anything else that you have seen recently that reinforce your belief that things are okay, that a recession is not, you know, around the corner and that these expectations from the beginning of the year, 60% of market participants saying that we were going to have a recession soon. Anything else that you have seen to suggest that that is not the case, that we're going to be okay for the time
1: being? So (laughs) I'll run through almost everything I did in the webinar in short order here, because This was one of the more robust pictures that I've seen, and it all matches up with coming out of a recession. So the first thing is China reopened and that has continued. So the abandonment or the pivot from the zero COVID policy occurred in December. We've already had inflation year over year pointed downward. That hasn't changed as of yet. And I don't expect it to in the first half of the year, because again, the base effects the fed has clearly pivoted to the point where they're not saying things like we want the market to collapse, to keep inflation lower. So Those points alone are not data, but those things are out there. So the recession stuff should already be going down. The China PMIs have gone back up. And I highlight that getting back to 50 in China PMIs makes it very likely that US PMIs are going to back up to 50. The jobs number, as you said, came out stronger. The EU PMIs came out stronger. And now the Eurozone manufacturing PMIs are back above 50 as well. So you've got China bouncing back up. You've got Europe bouncing back up. You've had a warm winter, which means that for Europe and the U.S., they're going to get a benefit, plus it really helped with oil prices. Nat Gas, and I highlight this in there, Nat Gas Futures, the six-month contract, is back to the range of where it was during the fracking boom at $3. So if you do an overlay chart, which I did with crude oil, as much as we think oil is going to go higher, meaning people are talking about inventory shortages and stuff like that, talking about Russia is going to take oil offline, the chart just says to me that oil's got to pull back down and that leads to another part, which is if you're not going to have the inflation stuff pick up, well, real income is back above zero. It had been below zero for much of last year. And that's because the jobs numbers are coming in and inflation's going down. When you start going through the service PMIs, we had a huge jump in the new orders for service PMIs up above 60. I show in there that you don't get job losses when you have service numbers, which drives our economy above 60. The 517,000 job print, just to put it in perspective, I highlight that from 1990 to 2020, we only had one month, the entire 30 years that had more than 400,000 jobs. And we had 517,000 jobs. So I can keep going on the data. But most importantly is the way assets are going. The move index for rates vol continues to pressure going lower. Six-month vol for the VIX is at the lows of the last year. The breadth of the market, over 60% of names in the Russell 3000 are above the 200-day moving average. It was below 20. If you go look at the prior bear markets, when you hit that level, you were out of the bear markets. The 50-day moving average has crossed the 200-day moving average on the S&P, which I tweeted about just to highlight. The breadth. All of the strength, what's happening in the markets around the globe, all of it suggests that it's better. And at the same time, credit spreads continue to tighten every single day.
0: Let me just back up here because you just said a lot there, and I want to make sure that we can break it down. You made reference to the MOVE index. What is the
1: MOVE index? The MOVE index, I believe, was created by Bank of America. It is a proxy For something to represent what the VIX is, but it's a little bit more diversified than that, but it's rates volatility, for lack of a better word. So it's meant to measure the volatility of the interest rate market. Okay. And your point is that in terms of where we
0: are with rates volatility, it has stabilized and that stabilization is a very good sign for the markets,
1: right? the certainty in where rates will be six months from now has increased significantly relative to where it was last year. And so if you put yourself back into where we were six months ago, which would take us back to the summertime, we had no idea how aggressive the fed was going to go. We had no idea whether inflation was going to come back down meaningfully. So, we've now entered a point where the market is becoming more and more comfortable with where rates will be six months from now. And that's what all of this is about for the first half of this year. Are we more comfortable on the ism six months from now? Yes. Are we more comfortable on jobs six months from now? Yes. And so the rate market is just reflecting a lot of that confidence. Got it. Okay. And
0: so lastly, you made reference to something you tweeted out recently showing the 50-day moving average of the S&P. Crossing the 200 day moving average. Is this something you can quickly show on a video as well?
1: Yes. Okay. So we'll have that put into. I can show it. The main point for that is, you know, and again, this gets into two components. The jobs number is a lagging indicator. So everyone who's bearish is like, well, the job losses are coming soon. Like, this makes perfect sense. And I read this from a few people over the weekend. This strength should not be surprising in the jobs market at this stage. Like, it takes a while. It's a lagging indicator. And the rates just went higher in such a fast fashion that we're going to see it six months from now. So this is a bear market rally. Bear market rally is a term that I've never heard used more than what I've heard over the last five months. And again, I highlight that since the Fed funds rate was 1%, The DAX is up 15%, the S&P is up over 10%, bonds are up, credits up. Like This is from June of last year when the Fed funds rate was 1%. So I wanted to highlight to people some things that say this is not a bear market rally. And so there were three things that I pointed out. Number one, this 50-day moving average crossing the 200-day moving average. I make a reference to a group, ECRI, who they work with this premise on cycles of three P's which stand for pronounced, pervasive, and persistent. So in bear markets, using the 2000 to 2003 period, and using the 2007 to 2010 period, we didn't have the 50-day moving average cross the 200-day moving average until the end of the bear markets in both of those prior cases. So for everyone saying this is a bear market rally, they keep referencing how many rallies we got in 0102 and how many rallies we got in 0709. But we never did anything like this. Second part, I show credit spreads. When credit spreads break below the 200-day moving average, particularly the triple B index, it didn't go back above at the end of those bear markets. Like once you broke back below, you were done. So if this is a bear market rally, we're going to have to do something differently on the 50-day, which 200-day, which isn't impossible. But to say to people, this is just a bear market rally just like those two periods, it's just not true. And so what I wanted to highlight to people was we're seeing a lot of strength that shows a lot of different ways, but to fight off a bear market rally rhetoric, you have to have some data to support the fact that something's different this time. That's why I brought in the breath for what percentage of names once we're below 20, and then you get back above 60. That means there's a breath. This is not something narrow, and this is not something where credit continues to deteriorate. So as of this point, that was meant to show that this is not a bear market rally based on what that I'm looking at. Or if it is a bear market rally, it would truly be unprecedented. Well, at least for the period that people are referencing. The one thing is, and this is the point that hopefully everyone gets, if something changes to support, if the fed came out today and said, you know what, we're going to raise 50 next meeting. Then what I just said won't be valid. And so I don't think there's much of any chance of that to happen, but we have an inflation number next week. If it comes out, and it's way above expectations, and now we've had a jobs number and an inflation number, maybe the Fed does bring into the fact that they want some uncertainty back in the market because they're worried about inflation. You have to leave things open, and growing up at the racetrack and handicapping, there's always a chance that, Rich strike can win not being entered in the Kentucky Derby. The How day many before. times are we going to talk about this? You know, <laughs> it's a point of sensitivity. <laughs> That's the important part. And the webinars are meant to show that I think the favorite should be that there's no recession and that markets are coming out of a recession. That is not the favorite in the market based on the way people are positioned, the way people are talking and the way people are thinking at this point. And I think it should be the favorite. And it's just not. So you can bet on it you might be able to, there's one thing I left out and I just want to emphasize this because this is not something people follow much. So, you know, when my father taught me about horse racing, there's data in the program, but he always used to said the most important data is the stuff that the people at the track can't see. And that is usually taking hard work. It's digging around. It's looking at things that other people aren't looking at. Pure momentum had a huge down move in January. And we've talked about this internally. So Bloomberg puts out pure factors as opposed to the ones that are impacted by sectors where they have a skew. The pure momentum factor in January had its largest monthly decline since April of 09, which is when we came out of the bear market then. The only other months that we saw move as significant as that were March of 09, which was the true bottom in 09. And I think it was November of 02. But again, it was literally the month coming out of the bear market. So the way that you have a big momentum shift I highlighted at the beginning that people are stubborn. They haven't shifted. Well, sometimes they shift their positions without their rhetoric changing because they're getting tapped on the shoulder or because they're systematic, meaning they just have to do it. We hit that point that the force out started. And I think the taps on the shoulders will continue. And even though people are going to fight it, pure momentum was another indicator that a bottom is in for markets and that we're coming out of a recession. And for the first five, six months of the year, I think people should be focused on that.
0: Very interesting. All right. Well, to conclude here, I did want to ask you, you know, given everything that you've said about where you think things could be headed and everything is, of course, based upon probabilities, we are in a world of speed chess, of course, where things happen quickly. And if they do happen, we ultimately will have to change our views. But what is your expectation for the rest of the quarter and the first half of the year, given that we have already had a blazing start to the year?
1: So the speed chest analogy, which is something I've talked about since kind of going through Bitcoin, I guess, as an asset a couple of years ago, but I've talked about shorter and sharper cycles for, and written about it for probably seven, eight years at this point. We get sucked into calendar years. Like this is what should happen during a year. But the reality is things move so quickly that for the first three to six months, this to me is going to be a normalization process. Of people trying to figure out the next trade that they think is going to happen. So, the first thing is that we're not going to have a recession and what that means for earnings. Second thing is the last two years, or at least 21 months, we've had a deleveraging in hedge funds that has led to a lot of high factor volatility. And on the back of that, the way you have high factor volatility is every single trade became either recession on, recession off, or inflation on, inflation off. That's breaking down, which means correlations are breaking down. And so what I want to see and what I expect to have happen is for the first six months, this is going to be a pretty sharp leveraging period where people are going to be putting risk back on. Credit spreads will remain tight. The economy and the ISM will bounce back above 50 and then based on where sentiment is, I'll get a sense on whether this is now the favorite in the market. I think what's also likely, and I tweeted this today, is that I think inflation expectations are going to move back up, seen through tips. I don't think that matters that much as long as they only go up to 3%, maybe three and quarter percent for two years. If they go above that, I think it'll be a negative. And so rather than forecast where the inflation situation is going to be in the second half of the year... I want to see what's happening because there's one part of this that's still a little surprising to me and where I think I have a different view than most. Despite my encouraging signs on the economy, I just don't think the oil market has the demand bounce that people think it will on a China reopening. And so the part about China that I'm actually more negative about than most people. I think there's a reopening, but I think it's tourism. I think it's spending. I think it's hotels. I think it's airlines, but I don't think it's heavy GDP as I'm starting to call it. Heavy GDP is appliances, it's cars. I don't see the globe going through a heavy GDP bounce. I see it going through a tourism GDP bounce. And that says to me that the oil situation, if I was going to bet what's more likely at this point, I think there's a chance, and if we get below 70, I think it's going to be a big event, but I think there's a chance that people are underestimating the impact of artificial intelligence on a lot of different things. You and I have talked about it on here. I can't go a day without hearing about ChatGPT. More and more people are starting to realize the importance of AI, and I think with the cancer vaccines, with the fusion discovery... I think the market is starting to get a little bit more comfortable that artificial intelligence is staring us in the face in the same way that the iPhone was staring us in the face. They don't know how to make money off it, but there's an impact. And I think one of the impacts that could surprise people is actually the fact that I think energy might surprise this year and actually break below 70. I don't think it'll stay below there, but the charts on commodities just don't suggest that China's going to have a meaningful pickup. So those would be my surprises for the next six months. There is a bounce. Assets continue to rise. We continue to get a bull market type coming out of a recession period. But I don't think China's going to bring back an inflation component in the commodity side. All
0: right. You heard it here first, everyone. The name of your most recent webinar is entitled Don't Fight the Cred. Excellent title. We will link to it in the show notes. And if people have any uh, thoughts about it or questions, how should they get in touch with
1: you? You can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. I guess those are the easiest way. And for those of you on Bloomberg, you can always find me on Bloomberg. All right. Three ways to reach out to Jordy. Thank you so much. Thanks T3.
2: This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.